0: It's another dastardly dose of Dangerous History. Welcome to Episode 78 of the Dangerous History Podcast. This is CJ, and I'm happy to share with you Part 2 of my conversation with Bill Bupert today on the History of Irregular Warfare. I highly urge you to listen to part one of this first, if you haven't done so already, which was, of course, episode 77 of the Dangerous History podcast. And in this episode, we'll be taking a look at a smorgasbord of irregular warfare running from the early 19th century to the early 20th century. So galloping through about a century of irregular warfare with occasional diversions beyond that time span. So without further ado, here's part two of the History of Irregular Warfare, with Bill Bupert. Come tell us how you slew them poor Arabs two by two. Like the Zulus, they had spears and bows and arrows. How you bravely faced each one with your 16-pounder gun. And you frightened them poor natives to their marrows come out and fight me like a man. Show your you down Tell them how the IRA made run like hell. Bill Bupert, welcome back to the Dangerous History Podcast. I'm honored once again to be on Dangerous History. All right. Well, last time we got through a lot of uh, terminology and we talked a little bit about, you know, that irregular warfare may just simply be something that is always been present for human beings since our species existed yes but um for for the purposes of of this series that we're doing so that it doesn't run to like a thousand episodes (laughs) i i figured that we could maybe you know zero in on the last couple of centuries so looking mostly at the 19th and 20th century maybe a little bit into into our present century and we kind of back and forth came up with a list of some some specific cases of irregular warfare yeah. that we could get into. And uh, the first one I wanted to talk about was the so-called Peninsular War in Spain during the Napoleonic era, as it seems like a lot of a lot of people point to that as maybe the the first true kind of modern guerrilla campaign. So the the basic backstory, if listeners don't know is it's it 's during the Napoleonic era, and Napoleon, as he often would try to do, put one of his relatives, it was his brother, right, in the case of Spain, yes, I think it was his brother, yeah, and uh, appointed his brother as the new king of Spain, and um, turned out that even though the the military of Spain had been pretty much cowed, that the people of Spain were not exactly thrilled with that appointment, and rose up and with some outside assistance were basically able to present Napoleon with a, a problem that he was never able to solve. So, um, Bill, what, what are your thoughts on the, on the Peninsular War?
1: Well, they called it the Spanish Ulcer. It was either Lord Wellington or, or Napoleon would refer to, to it as that. And the British were pretty smart and savvy about it because they would provide what we would call the modern era, TAA, which would be training assistance and advice on how to conduct that guerrilla warfare. So they would provide them with materiel, they'd provide them with money, they'd provide them with networks, maybe they could provide them with a mobile network for guerrilla leaders on the uh, Spanish and Portuguese peninsula to use the shoreline to go from place to place if they didn't want to go through Napoleon's lines. What's interesting about this, and, and we're going to leap forward in time just briefly, when Grant was investing... Shall I say, laying siege to Vicksburg, at, which was uh, finally broken on the same day that Gettysburg was broken, July 4th, 1863, he had to devote, according to a lot of the documentation, three quarters of his entire order battle, all of, to protecting his lines of communication, which is a fancy phrase for how do I protect my supply lines? This is what harried Napoleon. Napoleon was the same one who pioneered brilliant logistical means to supply this army that he was advancing throughout the continent. That becomes very problematic and very troublesome if these long wagon trains of support all of a sudden come under lateral fire or harrying or raiding or harassment or interdiction by means of guerrillas or even conventional forces on occasion, but in this case by guerrillas. I would suggest to you that it was a combination of the guerrillas and the Germans that gave Wellington, Wellington his victory over Napoleon in 1814, and that if it hadn't been for the Spanish ulcer, which also included some French guerrillas who were fighting against the Napoleonic regime, Wellington may not have had his victory in 1814.
0: 18- the uh, Spanish, I don't know if they were called this at the time, but I, I just want to use the term anyway because I like it, Insurrectos. Oh, um, I like it. Yeah, I know that's one they used in, um, I think, the, the Cuban War in the 1890s. They called yeah. the, the rebels there insurrectos. Yeah. Um, the Spanish insurrectos against Napoleon, they were primarily just kind of random people and peasants and whatever, correct? Like very few of them were really of a military background.
1: Oh, and what you, you find that to be almost a universal where you'll have some folks who rise up. And again, I, I had mentioned the War of Northern Aggression. Look at Nathan Bedford Forrest. I mean, if, if I'm correct, he rose from private to general within three years.
0: Yeah, and he had no prior military experience before no, that
1: war, right? No prior military experience. The same thing with Quantrill, the same thing with, uh, with a lot of folks. And, and by the way, just if, if the audience will bear with me, because I know that you and I are leaping from one historical epic to another, but all these are really connected. Even if you have military experience, that's not going to necessarily make you successful. I happen to think that General George Washington, who Murray Rothbard characterized as the Generalissimo, was far less talented than folks make him out to be. And he really was a hapless commander who careened from one military disaster to another, yet the fog of time and and American hagiography has tried to make him into something that he wasn't. So I just want to show there's a converse to this coin where we have Forrest rising from a private— to a general officer during the War of Northern Aggression, we have this this aristocrat, uh, General Washington, who fought in the French and Indian Wars, and didn't, uh, you know, comport himself in the most military militarily successful fashion. Then, just because one has a military pedigree, isn't going to make you successful. But that doesn't mean that on the other side of the coin, just because the guerrillas don't have military pedigrees, they're not going to be successful either. Again, moving forward in time, Michael Collins dies at the age of 32 or 33. If it weren't for Michael Collins, the Irish would not have wrested their independence from Britain when they did in 1920 to 1922. So I just want to put that to bed that one does not have to have a military pedigree nor deep background to succeed against a superior military force that is arrayed against you, especially if you're in a guerrilla fashion.
0: Yeah, there's, there's a lot of cases in American history, um, Many of them during the Revolution, uh guys who accomplished f- far more in real terms than Washington with far fewer resources. Um some of them I, I mentioned in my my revolutionary series, you know, people like Ethan Allen, people like well, during the Battle of Lexington and Concord, uh was it William William Heath, yep. some of those some of those guys. Nathaniel Green, another example, um no real military experience prior to the Revolutionary War and yet yeah, turned I mean, out to be quite effective.
1: I mean, William Heath was a, uh, he was a dilettante. He was, he was a military intellectual. He's what we call a defense intellectual today, where he didn't really fight, but he thought. And he read, and he read deeply. And he's the one who came up with that brewing campaign where at Lexington and Concord, after the Redcoats were on the run back to Boston because things did not go the way they wanted them to do, Heath had suggested that we have rings of fire that would move forward with their retreat to keep them under fire the entire time. And I'm not certain what his military pedigree was. Of course, he was a general officer. I don't know how active his military service was, but his innovation at the time really put the redcoats on the run.
0: Yeah. It seems like sometimes it might be an advantage to not have as much conventional training because it means that one is more uh, naturally likely and able to think outside of the proverbial box.
1: And again, I think you've, you've struck on something that's brilliant here. When the conventional soldier fights the conventional soldier, and your audience has probably seen movies that portray the Revolutionary War, some of them may have read books, you find that the British for the most part, let's say Cornwallis and the Hart brothers and such, they were very by-the-book regulation members of the greatest military combine on the face of the planet at the time. Although, I'll, I'll tell you what, the French gave them a run for their money, even in the 1750s. But nonetheless, they were really really by the book, but they were confounded every time they run against a Francis Marion or any of the revolutionary partisan organizations and formations that they ran into that would that would do H and I, harassment and interdiction, conduct raids, those kind of things.
0: Back to the uh the, the Peninsular War, yeah. the the British I know provided a lot of financial and logistical support in that campaign. Did they try to to your knowledge, did they did they try to impose sort of their training and their tactics on the guerrilla fighters in Spain? Or did they have the good sense to kind of give them, you know, a free reign to let them do it the way they were doing it?
1: I think that my reading on this is, is a little more casual than yours. So I only want to speak with, with within my competence on my observations of what I've read. Here's my thinking on it with, with the question that you just asked, is that I think they tended to look the other way because they have the same conceit that so many, especially conventional forces have when they invade a country where when there's guerrillas, they tend to find the guerrillas just as problematic to what their war plans are as what it could do to napoleon and I don't think the British quite had the martial imagination to know what they could do by harrying the l o c s until they until they started l o c s and then the British were probably stroked their chins and said, "Wow, there may be something here. Let's start start supporting this more robustly." That would be my observation.
0: Okay. Oh, by the way, I I just had a sudden uh, sudden light bulb over my head from out of nowhere, and um, you know we were talking about how how a lack of conventional military pedigree might be an advantage. I did just think of a counterexample from the American Revolution that I'll throw out there, and one yeah. that I did talk about a bit in my series on that, which is uh. Charles Lee, Charles Lee, who who did actually have a more impressive uh, British military resume than George Washington did, but Charles Lee had actually learned the lessons of how effective irregulars could be, and as a result was constantly butting heads with Washington in the, in the first roughly half of the Revolutionary War. Um, Charles Lee always wanted to do things, you know, more more reliance on unconventional warfare and, indirectly, and Washington, yeah. yeah, 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 and Washington was always. You know, smacking him down and imposing the, the conventional British sort of way on things. Look, I, but, I, um, he
1: did the same thing to Benedict Arnold. And I, I would tell you from my casual observation of the Revolutionary War, Benedict Arnold was the most capable general officer that the Continentals had. And they, they screwed the pooch on that opportunity to take advantage of him because of Machiavellian infighting by Washington, who did not want, who did not want to be one-upped by the superiority of Benedict Arnold's martial capabilities.
0: Yeah, Washington really was not not a very impressive general, but in a in a cold blooded Machiavellian sense, he was a hell of a politician.
1: Yes he was. Yes he was. And politicians just sort- remember, politicians are simply violence brokers. You know, I think politicians right. is a is a colloquialism. We need to get out of our our language because it really doesn't portray what they do. So yes, I think that he's quite the capable violence broker, as we saw in seventeen ninety four when he led an army a, a mere three years after the ratification of the Constitution against tax resistors.
0: Um, and one more thing I'll throw out on the Peninsula War with Napoleon is that it seems like – and this is this is not actually a conflict I've, I've read on in too much detail myself, at least not lately – but um, it seems like Napoleon – didn't have any sense of anything resembling a a counterinsurgency strategy, that basically he was doing that whole just try and crush the insurrection by force, you know, with occasional reprisals against the civilians.
1: And we know that historically that does not end well. You know, it's like we're seeing today in the Middle East where Western forces and American forces discovered since 2001 that You can't accidentally kill their women and children fast enough to stop their men from joining the resistance.
0: Yeah, somebody I was reading on fourth generation warfare, it might have been Lind or it might have been somebody else, was making the point that in fourth generation warfare, the harder you crack down in a conventional sense, the more in kind of a judo sort of way it actually strengthens the insurgency. Indeed skipping ahead a little bit to the uh, the not so civil war in the US the um there there was a little bit of irregular warfare conducted by some union forces but it seems like the bulk of the irregular warfare that took place there was on the confederate side
1: and of course why would that be you yeah, have you right. have the answer CJ because they were invaded
0: yeah yeah they they were invaded they were they were fighting almost almost always on their home turf right And they were they were facing an opponent that had vastly more numbers and vastly more industry and all those other sort of conventional resource advantages. So um, the the fighting in in Kansas and Missouri is uh, probably probably the two places where you find the most of of that sort of fighting going on um, during that war. Although you also had Nathan Bedford Forrest, you know, cavalry officer conducting some um, unconventional campaigns and you had others like John. yeah. And John Mosby. Yep. He's one, I guess it was back when I was an undergrad, I wrote a paper on on John Mosby. Very interesting operations. I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with him.
1: Oh, I am. Indeed. Yeah. And it was the last two years of the war in which he really sort of got into the groove of harrying the forces the way he did. And he had such inferior numbers compared to the forces he was harrying, but they couldn't find him.
0: Yeah, I think Mosby's Rangers, if I remember right, they rarely had more than two dozen guys. Yeah. And their entire command. And they were they were basically um, causing, you know, a county or several counties of northern Virginia to be completely just an unsolvable problem for the union.
1: Well, you had White's Comanches, you had Luton Rangers, you had McNeil's Rangers, you had all kinds of independent outfits that were operating and the – well, maybe this isn't so surprising, CJ. They weren't coordinated with each other. And I think that lack of coordination made it even harder for the federal forces because – what conventional armies always look at is they say, "How can I cut the head off the snake? How can I stop this altogether? I'll take a capital. I'll I'll kill all the leaders." But in this case, you can't kill all the leaders.
0: Yeah, it's the old problem of the starfish versus the spider.
1: Indeed, right? Indeed. You, What a great book! We should put that in the show notes. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. That that's one I've referred to a, a few times in various places uh, in various other episodes. Um, very interesting book, right? If if you decapitate a spider, that's it; it's dead. A starfish has no head, and if you lop off one of its limbs, not only does that limb grow back, but at least with some species of starfish, the severed limb grows into a whole new starfish.
1: Not only that, the starfish tends to be smarter, and I'm, I'm using that more in a figurative allegory than anything else, but if, if you've, for instance, and, and we're going to flash back and forth, please um, indulge me on that, where when you look at what French forces did in Algeria in the 1950s, you're just astonished at how silly and heavy-handed and bloody and murderous they were and, and the use of torture and everything, and not realizing what the second and third order effects of that were. The the way that relates to our conversation now is, think of this. During World War II, the French are occupied for five years. Five years. They have two very effective resistance organizations, the Maquis and the French Resistance, both very communard in their in their nature the uh, the the resistance more so than the Maquis, but it was the communist cellular structure that they had formed in the 1930s when they were pursued by the French government that gave them the ability to resist the Nazis during the war itself, so you'd think c j that pretty savvy guerrilla fighters, right the French, or they'd have a mm-hmm. cadre to draw from you and would then, think so, yeah, and then you look at them in French Indochina after World War ii and you look at them in Algeria and you scratch your head and say why aren't they referring to anything that they lived during their occupation in reference to what they're doing to the algerians and the vietnamese in this case
0: yeah that's that's a good point i never i never thought about that you know disconnect
1: yeah a huge disconnect um, and maybe that's because the conventional forces were in charge you know the paras were the paratroopers were the primary french organization that that was doing all the stuff there there's some great books out as a matter of fact I'll send you a list if you like on the, I think the show sure. note, I think the show notes on this are going to be considerable I'll send those to <laughs> you, I'll send those to you but anyhow getting sure. back to what you were saying about the Confederate partisans and the precursors with the the free soil and the slave wars that happened with the bushwhackers the Jayhawkers and such I think that that really set the stage for what was going to happen for instance Quantrill is is uh, is portrayed as a pretty bloody-minded and murderous thug by the North. And there's no doubt that some of the stuff that he did was would leave a bad taste in your mouth, like what he did in Lawrence, Kansas. When you look at the backstory, though, you discover that the Union had come in, found out who a lot of these raiders were, taken their women and children, imprisoned them, and it turns out that in one case where the women and children were, the roof collapsed on the house that they were in, and they were all killed. So what, what would they expect... As a result, where the partisans say, hey, look, you've taken our women and children. Not only have you taken them, but you've murdered them. It, it, it's like Stonewall Jackson was talking about during the war. We must fly the black flag, sir. We must offer no quarter. These are invaders. And, and if anything would put the steel in their spine, when you do that, and this is a universal, by the way, throughout thousands of years, and you probably observed this, CJ. When you use the women and children against the partisans, you are not reducing the partisan threat. No. Ever. What you've done is you've probably taken a man and made it, made him a lifetime gorilla until your blood is flowing in the streets, if you've done that to his women and children.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, the more modern examples of that phenomena are everywhere. Everywhere. Uh, all you have to do is look at Bloody Sunday in Northern Ireland in the uh, early 1970s. Absolutely. And su- supposedly, the um, the – you know, people trying to volunteer to join the IRA. Uh, the numbers went through the roof after that. After that massacre, and the IRA previous to that had been sort of a a gradually fading organization.
1: Yeah, and then you look at the Croak massacre in nineteen twenty. It was after bloody. It was after the first Bloody Sunday because the Bloody Sunday right. you're referring to is sixty nine or seventy. Is that correct? Yeah, the Bloody Sunday. Yeah, after, somewhere in there. Yeah, the Bloody Sunday I'm thinking of is November nineteen twenty, where the castle, which is where. The British special intelligence squad of detectives was headquartered in. They were all assassinated, which was popularized in the movie called Michael Collins starring Liam Neeson, where there was that day when they murdered all of those men who were members of the Castle Cadre. And what happens immediately after? And and there's some artistic license in the movie, but they go to that soccer stadium stadium and open fire on civilians. You know, did that help to swell the IRA ranks? You better believe it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean even even in the case of the Easter rising, and I and I guess I guess we're we're already plot spoiling uh, <laughs> uh the topic of, of the Irish war a bit, but even in the case of the Easter Rising in nineteen sixteen, I mean, the rising itself was a handful of radicals. It was it was not something that at the time that it you know was done had huge mass support and it was the British crackdown and the way the British dealt so brutally. Uh, with, with the Easter Rising that suddenly made the population get behind it.
1: I, I agree with you, and I think it was a, there's another interesting political element to that, too, and that's this notion of having a shadow government. When you say, we're going to conduct an insurgency, we're going to get the English out of our country, and by the way, you can fill in English with, with whatever invader of whatever country it is, we're going to establish a shadow government in which we have a prime minister and all the other ministers, and we are going to show the people that not only can we fight the occupier, we can affect. And I, I'm putting the words in in uh, in Di Valera's mouth here. We can effectively fight and administer as a country, much as we see with Hamas and what they've done in Lebanon, and Hezbollah, what they've done in the Middle East, where they say not only will we fight, but we'll also govern and provide services, things like
0: that. Yeah, which also is something that occurred in the case of the American Revolution, where you had the Committees of Safety and other other local groups that dozens of know, different
1: committees. Yeah, you're right. And Paul Revere was a member of 24 of them.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and those groups, you know, at the very beginning, and and in some ways even even before Lexington and Concord, a lot of those groups were already sort of just stepping in and displacing the previous structures, at least for local government. And
1: it speaks and so, to what I said in the first episode concerning legitimacy and perceived and real grievances being the fulcrum upon which insurgencies can successfully defeat those who are sent against them.
0: Right, right. Um, back to the the uh, 1850s and, and 60s yeah. Yeah. Uh, conflict in the United States, one one thing that I'd point out going going back into bloody Kansas, you know, in the aftermath of the uh Kansas Nebraska Act, and the whole situation there where you had two separate state constitutions, one with slavery, one without both yes. claiming to be the real one yeah and and then the the back and forth violence, it really is hard to to in in any conflict that's that that messy to look back and say who is the instigator who's who's the one that you know first started conducting things that would be thought of as atrocities, but wasn't it in Kansas? In that time period that uh, the famous John Brown and his sons, I believe, found some pro-slavery people uh, asleep in their beds and hacked them to death with broadswords or some such thing?
1: I, I, I do recall that incident. I can't stipulate it right now. And you were asking me sort of what was the cause of spell for that? And, and my answer is always the ratification of the Constitution in 1791 caused everything that happened afterwards. Now, that seems seems intuitively obvious to most. But what you have to remember, too, is that 1791, you had a document that said slavery is the law of the land. And in 1793 and in 1850, you have slave acts that come out that enforce this to such an extent, they form slave patrols, fugitive slave acts, things like that in the 1850s. All that set fire to the country. And, and, you know, was the War of Northern Aggression about slavery? It was, but not in the conventional sense that most people say, well, Lincoln wanted to free the slaves. Lincoln didn't free the slaves. What he did was he he set the precursors for the 13th Amendment to get rid of chattel slavery and the 14th Amendment to put every human being on the plantation. And I I would tell you, put them back on the plantation because they'd been on the plantation ever since the constitutional rubric tentacled its way across the country and became the law of the land.
0: Why do you think that the Confederates in their war effort didn't appreciate the the possible utility of unconventional warfare? I mean, we had all these these outfits scattered all over the place who were very effective with very little men and resources. How, How come they never appreciated how much you know, use they could get out of that, and why did they keep devoting you know, so much of of the resources to the conventional war effort?
1: CJ, you're intentionally throwing me a softball to which you and I both have the answer, and that's this: 1848, during the the um, the Mexican American War, those were the formative years in which all the generalship was forged on what would happen during the War of Northern Aggression, a mere ten to fifteen years. Ago. General Lee's an engineering colonel, and and all the rest of it. All of these men who came out of West Point who comprised, I can't put a percentage to it, but let's call it 80% of the generalship in both the Union and the South, wanted to fight a gentleman's war. And Lee, probably one of the most able military commanders in the history of humanity, simply wouldn't conceive in his martial imagination that that was the right way to do a conflict. I think he would tolerate it if it gave him an operational advantage. But I don't think that he would ever operationally approve of integrating that into his war plans with Davis and his fellow generals. Does, do you agree with that?
0: Yeah. And do you think that in the case of the South, it might have even been, though that mindset might have even been more magnified by sort of the gentlemanly aristocratic culture? Amen. Yes. It made it even even more of a of a just an unspoken dogma than it was even among northern generals with mexican war experience and conventional training that this this gentlemanly aristocratic mindset and when you look at most of the guys in the confederate military you know whether formally or informally who were the effective unconventional fighters i think very few if any of them have that aristocratic background
1: I'm not certain. That's something that we we could stipulate through primary and secondary source documentation. I I don't know whether that's the case or not, CJ, but what I do know is that I get the intimation, having read several books on Jackson, that Jackson was really warming up to the idea of aligning or operationalizing unconventional and partisan warfare in concert with greater war aims.
0: And Stonewall Jackson, when you look at things like his Shenandoah Valley campaign, I think you could almost argue that he was already getting to third-generation warfare, even though he was still doing it with people on foot.
1: Well, here's what, here's what really puts the truth to what you just said, and that, that's, that's a brilliant observation. Number one, the German general staff, when they formed their formative blitzkrieg ideas, and they were wargaming that and brainstorming it, they looked at Forrest's operational campaigns as a methodology and an example of how they could do that successfully. And the second thing is, Forrest was an interesting guy in that not only did he have this kind of hybrid, conventional, unconventional means by which he was doing it, he was very savvy about the political implications of most everything that he did, despite the the, the fog that's involved in Fort Fort Pillow and and the kind of I guess darkness that's put on Force legacy. But in the end, I think that he was probably one of the only guys along with Vice President Alexander Stevens in the Confederacy who could really find a way to hybridize conventional and unconventional warfare so that it could be used at the operational and strategic level to win the war against the invaders.
0: So basically the the overall Confederate war effort was just basically hobbled from appreciating the potential for a lot of these ideas by their their prior experience their conventional west point education and then amplified even further with their aristocratic gentlemanly culture um that that's one of those interesting things that and jeff was
1: he was secretary of war in the union
0: right right
1: so he he had a real good idea but you know what disappoints me the most cj is that what they did from 1863 to 1865 is that Jefferson Davis, I guess he thought he had to do it. He emulated those very things they had separated from the Union to do in the first place.
0: Oh, you mean in terms of uh, taxes and conscription and big government? Yeah, all
1: all of that stuff. Uh, And and I I do want to put one thing to rest if we could here. Okay, a segue. And that's people say, well, was a war fought about slavery? Was a war fought about this was a thought about states' rights. I'm going to say something that some people may shock, find shocking, but if you grok this, you're going to understand why I say it. All wars about slavery, and it's fought over slavery because all wars are fighting not over essentially freeing themselves from the other overlord, but having another overlord take over in the absence or vacuum created by that overlord being overthrown. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, no, that's yeah. that's a good point and I agree and yeah. that's that's something that always makes it so problematic because it's very easy in a lot of cases when you're looking at some some scrappy guerrilla fighter somewhere that and I I think most of us have a tendency to sympathize with them in sort of a David versus Goliath kind of way yeah. and then you got to keep in mind that half the time at least if not more those scrappy guerrilla fighters are going to if they win establish a homegrown state that is likely to be as bad or worse than what they're fighting against?
1: Well, again, you and I are, are, we're we're flitting through these historical cases, but I think there's good reason for this. When we look at the Irish fighting the Irish in the Irish Civil War that germinates in 1920 after, or is it 1922? In 1922, after Michael Collins manages to go, and I think that he was set up by Eamon de Valera, by the way, Michael Collins goes to London And he comes back with a free state, still part of the Commonwealth, but a free state. It bifurcates the country into a civil war. But in the end, they are socialists fighting socialism to install their socialism. I mean, they are socialists fighting socialists to install their variation of socialism that they envision for everybody else.
0: Well, um, unless you had anything else to throw out regarding the the not so civil war, (laughs) I guess we can.
1: I don't. We can move on.
0: Okay, we can well, jump but, ahead. But
1: I'll bet we'll probably come back to it as we have.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's inevitable when you're trying to dig into a huge historical phenomenon like this that yeah. you kind you kind of can't avoid jumping around somewhat because there's all these parallels and yeah. and all these connections to be made. Yeah. Um, but one one topic that I wanted to talk about a bit was the so-called anglo-boer wars or the boer wars as they're sometimes called uh, particularly the big one from from 1899 to 1902 but yeah. but also um I, I just wanted to mention are you familiar with the with the earlier one uh the war that that culminated in the battle of Majiba hill in 1881 absolutely yeah that that's uh that's a fascinating one to me that battle because it's one of those few cases in history where you have outnumbered forces attacking uphill who who nonetheless managed to win against yeah. uh, against the british forces yeah
1: yeah well they were a hard, th- they were a hearty band of people the Boers.
0: yeah yeah there's there's i mean there's a lot to admire about them i certainly don't endorse all of all of their uh, racism and whatever no uh, but on the other hand there, there's a lot to admire about their sort of toughness and hardiness and, yeah. and what have you uh do you agree with the with what's probably the most common interpretation of how the Boers won it at Majiba Hill, that a lot of it just simply came down to marksmanship?
1: I do think a lot of it was marksmanship because remember they were using Mausers. And I think in 1881 that the British were still employing the Martini Henry's that cost them an entire battalion. I guess it was the 24th Regiment of Foot. It cost them an entire battalion in 1879 at a And they had those breech loading single shot, Martini-Henrys, that weren't as accurate as the Mausers that the Boers were, were, were employing. It said, when you and I were exchanging show notes, and, and, and I hope I'm not embarrassing you with this, CJ, I don't mean to do that, you said this really interesting thing where you said, let's discuss the distinction as to whether they're actually Gs. And, and I noted that I think it's problematic because I don't characterize them so much as guerrillas and their commandos especially, which is where the term comes from. As Liddell Hart and direct fighters, and when I'm saying that, speaking back to the first episode, Basil Liddell Hart was a British historian and strategic observer who talked about the indirect approach. And the indirect approach, as, as most of your audience would be aware, the best modern example of that would be how the Iraq war was, floated, was fought in 1991, where instead of taking the forces on head-to-head, they were taken in, a, in an envelopment that would have done can-a-justice when Hannibal defeated the Roman legions by going on their flanks and rear and then destroying them in detail. I think to a large extent, that's what you saw the Boers doing with standard with standoff marksmanship. And also the Boers had far more mobility via horse than I think the British did because the Boers did not consider themselves so much cavalry as dragoons. And you did have some dragoon formations in the British army, but most of them fought as cavalry. And there's a distinct disadvantage doing that in mountainous terrain.
0: Uh, just just for the listeners who aren't familiar with, with what happened with the Boers in South Africa, the Boers are these uh, descendants of mostly Dutch farmers who'd been in South Africa since the early 17th century. Yeah, And then uh, during the Napoleonic Wars, the British took over the Cape and – The uh, British began imposing, you know, their their ways and laws and things on what was called the Cape Colony. And eventually a lot, not all, but a lot of these these Dutch boers got sick of that. And they had what was called the Great Trek, very similar to like the Oregon Trail era in the United States. Yeah. 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 Where they even had Conestoga wagons and things. I mean, it, it looks very similar and they kind of walked northeastward out of the Cape Colony Established their own, what eventually became known as the Boer Republics, and the British tried to take them over and they were, they were um, defeated, you know, at Majiba Hill in 1881. You had, so you had these little independent Boer Republics for a little while, but then it wasn't long before the um, discovery of, of gold in the Transvaal, which was one of the Boer Republics. And uh, this brings in all those great historical villains like uh, Cecil Rhodes and and Indeed. all those characters, yeah. where where suddenly um, because there's gold underneath this little little tiny impoverished Boer republic in a remote corner of South Africa, suddenly the British Empire decides it's completely vital national security that they have to conquer these people. Indeed, and uh, it, it finally comes to a head. There's there's a, an attempt to overthrow the one of the Boer republics, the Jameson Raid in 1895 that uh is is defeated but then 1899 i guess it was um full on war breaks out between the british empire and the boer republics and the war the war runs from 1899 to 1902 at least officially and um the basic way the war went i think the boers started off doing very well in the early phases they went on offense very skillfully and then within about a year or so the british were able to mobilize hundreds of thousands of soldiers from all over their empire from as far away as yeah. you know australia in some cases
1: we started know, part to it, part of it was, is what was called a and the which is fire movement
0: that, mm-hmm.
1: that they would use that was quite uncharacteristic of anything that the british had employed because the british were still basically at the time using the rifle as simply the first shot fired, and then they would close with iron. They would close with a bayonet. That They were still employing those tactics. They would still employ those tactics up through and And thanks to you, i had never made the connection, CJ, that here we had a Sondalwana where they lost that, that entire battalion of men, as characterized in the movie Zulu and Zulu Dawn. Zulu Dawn, as a matter of fact. And then this is a mere two years after,
0: Majibahil. I didn't realize that right and the uh the boers also had a a rifleman culture where yes. you know they they were constantly hunting they were constantly uh defending their livestock from marauding lions or what have you and so they they just were used to shooting a rifle from almost the time they could walk yeah whereas a lot of the british soldiers were not uh, the, the australians probably were the ones who were the most similar, you know, who did have some uh, – many of them had, had a marksmanship background. But a lot of the British troops, you know, from Britain had never even held a rifle until they joined joined the army.
1: Yeah, and and, and again, like I'm, I'm bragging about this, but Bupert's Law of Military Topography is that a rifleman's culture with riflemen who know what they're about, you will find it incredibly difficult to, to militarily defeat them in detail if they live in a mountainous environment.
0: Right. Well, the the British got, I think by roughly 1900, they were getting the upper hand. They had won several conventional battles, and most historians will then characterize the remainder of the war as as a guerrilla war, of, as a war of, you know, the Boers mostly employing things like hit-and-run tactics and, and sabotage and, and so on. So, I'll
1: give you that, CJ. I think you're correct. I think in the last two years of the conflict, of course, what did the British do in order to really bring the Boers to their knees? They institutionalized. Maybe they didn't originate it, but they institutionalized in the West the use of concentration camps for women and children.
0: Sure. And it's uh, roughly contemporary with the Spanish doing the same thing in Cuba.
1: And roughly contemporary with Americans doing the same thing in the Philippines.
0: Yep, and in and in all cases subsequent to, and we know in part inspired by what Americans had done previously in the Western United States. Only they didn't call it concentration camps; they called it reservations. So it's totally different. <laughs>
1: indeed, indeed. I, I find it I find it so interesting when when we look at these timelines, and we're talking about both conventional and conventional warfare. The first time. American arms were used in what, what one may characterize as an extra-colonial venture was the failed Korean campaign in 1871 to take some islands off of Korea and claim them as either under American suzerainty or, or at least have control of them. It didn't happen. Isn't it interesting that by 1893, when the Marines marched on Hawaii and militarily took over that that island chain, I think the reason they were able to do that, CJ, is because between 1865 and 1893, the American armed forces on the continent had pretty much eradicated the aboriginal problem, I put that in quotation marks, the aboriginal problem that they had been fighting for the longest time. So now they could they could take their their military prowess that they had learned on the plains of America and such in fighting the aboriginals, and extend it to try to join the colony club of the rest of the world.
0: Yeah, and One of the the Spanish generals in Cuba in the 1890s who was using these concentration camp uh, practices was a a self-avowed fan of people like William Tecumseh Sherman and explicitly said he was inspired by how Sherman had dealt with the Western Indians.
1: It's it's disturbing when when you're able to – To piece all this together and historically look at this entire tapestry in the West, and we haven't even touched on the East, but we look at this entire tapestry in the West, and then you look at just the barbaric practices that were employed in conventional warfare. Like, where did waterboarding come from? It came from in the Philippines. And by the way, in some of the primary source reading I've done, one-third to two-thirds of all the uh, indigs that they waterboarded in the Philippines died in the process. Wow. Yeah. Horrific.
0: Why why do you think the Boers were able to or were not able to succeed in in defending their sovereignty against the British Empire? Was it simply just a matter of numbers and resources overwhelm them despite how how skillful they might have been? Was it the fact that the Boers never got significant outside help? I what do you think?
1: I think it's a combination of both, but let's fast forward to World War One where I think it was Jan Smuts, is just chomping at the bit to be on the Imperial War Council. I suspect, Mm. I suspect, so if we we fast forward backwards, I'll bet London was participating in quite a bit of Machiavellian intrigue with the political leaders among the Boers making them promise what it would be like to be members of the Commonwealth and the power that they would have as a result of that and influence in the outcome of the war with that,
0: hmm. classic imperialism, right? co op yes. the local elite to get them on your side,
1: exactly. And then, of course, where is Smoot Stern? World War One, he's on the Imperial War Council.
0: Yeah, and the uh, the Boers never got a significant amount of of outside help. The United States chose to stay totally neutral in regards to that. Yeah, and while while the Boers did buy did buy some weaponry from the Germans before the war, um, I don't believe that the Germans gave them any assistance of any type once the war was on
1: you know what let's stipulate that that's that's an interesting inquiry because it's sort of that's a brilliant segue by the way cj for leto vorbeck who right. you know a mere 14 years later after this last Boer war is is uh is settled by the british to their advantage we discover that 1914 we have leto paul emil von leto vorbeck in germany east africa fights a four-year conflict against the British in which, in 1918, he is the only German general on planet Earth who is undefeated.
0: Yeah, and and this is probably the least well-known to most people theater of of the First World War. I think so, too. The operations in Africa, yeah.
1: Even though, look at the extent of the operations. But before we do that, let's close out the anglo Boer Wars thing because I know that we're – I don't want to – Take over the show and say, "Hey, let's segue into Leto Vorbeck right away." But it it just seemed that when you said that, CJ, it was an interesting way to introduce that.
0: Oh sure, no, I'm 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 okay with moving on. If we get bogged down in any one of these for too long, we'll probably do, you know, hours and hours and hours on <laughs> just one war. We could
1: well we could very well do that, couldn't we? You and I could talk right. ten hours on the Revolutionary Conflict from a conventional perspective if we wanted to.
0: Probably. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm actually not super familiar with the with the operations in Africa during the First World War. I mean, I've read a little bit about it, but um, so, you know, enlighten me.
1: Here's what's astonishing. Paul Emil von Leto Vorbeck, general officer, he was a colonel in 1914, who was assigned to German East Africa. And he was because he's because the Germans wanted to be on the in the colonial club. So they had established some African colonies, and German East Africa was one of them. The British had laid claim to it in 1914 and said, well, we're not going to let that stand. We're going to roll up every African colony and take the German flag out and place the British standard there. Well, then Vorbeck is assigned to defend that. He has quite a bit of problems with the political governor who doesn't have the martial will that he has and wants to compromise and eventually... Have a surrender with the with the uh, the British. Fortunately, Leto Vorbeck gets his instructions from the German General Staff, and they say stand and defend, and that's exactly what he does. As a matter of fact, he stands and defends with no outside help whatsoever from the Germans, much less anybody else. He has under his command these black troops, among whom are both other ranks and officers who are called Schutztruppe and he has a variety of of German-born officers who were either born into the colony or, or came down to the colony. So he's got a pretty good cadre of German professional soldiers who are helping him with this. He receives a breveted command to general officer. He receives command of the entire German East African department and that he's in charge of it. Well, for four years with... At, at a at a suboptimal optimal level of less than ten thousand troops to his name, that he's fighting against all these forces, he manages to evade them. He manages to harass. He manages to interdict. He manages to do some quite interesting things. And what, what I'll do is I'll I'll provide some book recommendations in your show notes so that people can pursue this fate further if they're interested. The idea the yeah, scale sure. and the scope is imagine this. You and I love counterintuitive or counter-historical examples of what could have been. Up to 500, they estimate between 500 and 650,000 soldiers were were sent by the Allies into this small backwater campaign in Africa to try to pin him down and destroy him in detail, or at least neutralize him in some fashion. Not only that, he managed over this four-year period of time to best, 125 estimated general officers that the Allies arrayed against him. Imagine if those 550,000, 650,000 troops had been on the continent fighting. Could that have shortened the war against the Germans? I don't know. It's entirely speculative. But look what Leto Vorbeck did here in Germany, East Africa, with a handful, as far as force ratios are concerned, in fighting and pinning down the British for four years, and at the end of 1918... He turns out to be undefeated. What does this mean, in unconventional conflict? One thing it means is that he was very self-sufficient. He was very innovative. He would scavenge weapons. He would take a – there was a ship, a German ship, that was pursued into the mangrove swamps. And eventually, he unlimbered the guns from that ship, physically brought them and unlimbered them and and physically brought them up to, I think it was Mount – Tanganyika, but we can stipulate that if if I've got it correct. And use these guns to lay artillery fire on British forces. we got to look at force ratios. That's what he provides such an interesting example of. What's the force ratio of 10,000 to 650,000? It looks like 65 to 1. Right. Fast forward, and by the way, I mentioned Peak G. I do consider Leto Vorbeck a guerrilla. Peak G, 1916 to 1922, because... Not only do we have Leto Vorbeck, but we've got T.E. Lawrence and we've got Michael Collins fighting his war during World War I for the Irish after the rising in 1916 through 1922. When we look at the IRA, the provost, the new IRA, the real IRA, and all of them, and we try to get peak manning of trigger pullers and bomb makers. I'm not talking about auxiliaries, I'm not talking about mass base, I'm talking about who will actually wield a pistol, wield a rifle or plant a bomb, they estimate at its peak 500 paramilitary men. How many did the British array against them out of London in both Northern Ireland and air until they got their free state status in 1922? The estimate at its peak is between 50 and 65,000. So again, look at that force ratio. It's astonishing. But you find these force ratios as far as guerrilla conflict happening planet-wide when it comes to these Western conflicts. lot Warbeck. He, he deserves a lot of credit, and he's one of those guys who simply hasn't gotten the attention that I think he deserves for what he achieved. And by the way, post-World War I, for, for those who think that all Germans are Nazis, he found himself secunded and, and pretty much pushed aside because he refused to become a National Socialist. So they did not use his skills and his martial imagination during World War II, because he refused to work with the Nazis.
0: Yeah, I'll have to read up more on on his campaigns and everything, because, yeah. uh, you know, it's something I've, I've come across a little bit in my readings on British imperial history. Um, but I've never zeroed in on on him and on that campaign. But now you've made me want to.
1: Well, if you go to my site and I talk about the other fight in there, not only do I have the interview with General Herman Bulk. But I also have a great paper that was done by an officer at Leavenworth on his campaigns. That's a terrific introduction to it. So on my site, it's called The Other Fight, Understanding Conventional Warfare. And under there, I've got two PDFs I recommend, one of which is bulk and one of which is that that overview and survey of Leto Vorbeck. And that's a great introduction.
0: Okay, great. That's definitely one of the uh, articles that I will link to specifically. Excellent. Uh, over, over at ZeroGov.com. Um, Please. Anything else to add on on Leto Vorbeck? Do, do you think that he that the reason he kind of he gets no respect is that despite his brilliance in his campaign, that he was on the side that ultimately lost a larger war, and so he just sort of gets gets left out?
1: CGI, I, I think you've hit it on the nose. That's that's precisely what happened because to the, to the discredit of the defense intellectuals. And I guess you can call them the intellectual secretariat that's in uniform like Petraeus et al., they tend to be very politically correct. So remember that even though Germany was born in 1870 from all the principalities that it was before that time under Bismarck, 12 years of German history is the totality of German history. Therefore, one can't study that. Do I like communism? I despise communism. Do I study Chairman Mao? I certainly do. Am I a fan of what General Jap did in Vietnam to, uh, to defend the country against this U.S. incursion and his ultimate victory? There's stuff to be studied. Absolutely. So we have to be careful to distinguish the actors because, like I said, Leto Vorbeck was, was not a Nazi by by any turn or respect. But when I look at Modell, when I look at Keito, When I look at Bauch, when I look at Guderian, were they members of the the Wehrmacht? They were. Were some of the members of the SS an extraordinary? Yes, they were. But does that mean that we can't study the things that we did and learn from them? Well, we certainly can. You know, what gave Guderian the brilliance that he had during World War II? Guderian was a great tank commander, a great panzer commander, the one who operated armies along with Bauch and the rest of them to such great efficacy and effectiveness in military campaigning at the operational level. What do you think he did in World War I?
0: Uh, was he in Africa?
1: He was a signal officer. Huh. So could Blitzkrieg have happened if you didn't have sufficient to robust communications down to the single tank? Right. No, it could not. Yeah. The fortune of Guderian being a signal officer and bringing that legacy to him becoming a panzer officer, it's one of those happy synchronicities that we have where all of a sudden... It, these two, the, these two things meet, and it turns into something much greater than the sum of its parts. And I want to mm-hmm. make it clear: I am not an apologist for National Socialism. But if you don't study the Wehrmacht and the German Army from eighteen o six to nineteen forty five, you're 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 going to be the poorer for it. If if you're interested in how armies fight
0: effectively, uh, looking at the clock, Bill looks like we've been going quite a long time on all this good stuff so probably we ought to hit the uh hit the pause button to reconvene at a later time and cover all the rest of the stuff that we want to cover so thanks for joining me yet again on the dangerous history podcast and i look forward to talking to you again in in the near future
1: i do too like i said cj it's an honor to to be on your program and i really think you're doing work for the ages so thank you for having me on
0: All right. I'd just like to say thanks very much yet again to Bill. He is truly a scholar warrior in the genuine sense of the term. And please check out Bill's website, zerogov.com. If you have comments, feel free to post them in the comment section for this episode at the website, profcj.org. And of course, also please feel free to email me with any questions, comments related to anything having remotely to do with the Dangerous History Podcast. My email address is profcj at profcj.org. Remember, you can follow me and the show on Facebook and Twitter. You can also subscribe to the podcast itself in iTunes and Stitcher. If you like the show, enjoy it, and want to see it continue to go and continue to get better, then remember there are multiple ways you can help the show out. One, of course, is simply to spread the word about it in whatever venue you may have available to you. And uh, that would include writing reviews or even just leaving ratings in venues such as iTunes and Stitcher. And, of course, I always appreciate any financial help. You can donate directly in several ways. Go to profcj.org slash donate, and you'll see there you can donate via PayPal or Bitcoin. And also, very much appreciated if you go over to patreon.com slash profcj. That's patreon.com slash profcj to support this show on a per-episode basis. Pledge any amount per episode, and I will thank you by name on the next show that I make. And pledge any amount from a dollar on up per episode, and you will then have access to special bonus episodes on Patreon that are available nowhere else. And of course, you can also help out the show financially by purchasing items from Amazon.com by first going through the affiliate links found on my website. By the way, in today's show notes, the Amazon links will include not only Bill Bupert's books, but also a bunch of books related to many of the topics we talked about today, and I think maybe even one or two movies. Huge thank you from me to everybody who has been helping to spread the word of the show or has helped out financially in any way. I appreciate it very much. Couldn't do this without you. Next time, of course, will be the next part of my conversation with Bill Bupert on irregular warfare in which we should be galloping along through much of the 20th century looking at a bunch of case studies of this phenomenon. So thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. This has been Prof C.J. today along with Bill Bupert helping you to learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.